Open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 11. Judges 11. We are focusing on family ministry, student children's ministry for the next two Sundays, and especially this coming Wednesday night. You don't want to miss uh, our family night on, on, on Wednesday night. You notice the backdrop behind me sort of covers the, the, the stages. It goes by just about that fast, too. Um, I don't know a whole lot about raising kids. I only ever had one, but I, I learned this much. I think that the deodorant probably should come in before now. If, if this is like preschool to graduation, y'all, this is about 10th grade and it's way too late. And uh, I, I'm just saying that because I've walked past your kid in the hall and uh, yeah, maybe let's move deodorant over to like about, you know, somewhere right here, uh, right about the time they really start ripening as, as, as young adults. Uh, we love our kids. We love the opportunity to... Uh, disciple your children along with you. On your way in and out today in the lobby, you'll find a board with, with these little prayer card bookmarks. Uh, pick one up. It has the name, just the first name and, and last initial of one of our students. We're only asking you who are willing to make a commitment to pray for a kid to take this name and pray for this name. Now, you're not going to know this kid, perhaps. You probably won't. You're not going to text them. You're not going to call them. You're not going to be all up in their stuff. No, you're just going to be a person who agrees to just cover a child in prayer. And, and again, you're not going to know anything about them other than their name, but the Lord knows. You take this child's uh, name before the Lord every day in your prayer life and just ask God to bless this child. Uh, it's one of the ways that we want to, uh, all of us together, uh, just make sure that we are doing our part as the family of God to uh, disciple uh, our, our, our young people. I've got Trayvon S., uh, he's the one I'm adopting in prayer, so I'll be praying for Trayvon. Uh, grab one of those bookmarks on your way out if, if you will make that same commitment to pray. We talk about uh, children's ministry, student ministry, and we use the color orange around here. You call it orange philosophy, or just today's an orange Sunday for us. Why do we call it orange? Do you know? Do you remember? In uh, the color wheel, there are primary colors and there are secondary colors. Primary colors are only three. In, in all the world, there are three primary colors. What are they? Red, yellow, blue. Yeah, way to go. Red, yellow, and blue. And then after, if you combine two primary colors, you get a secondary color. So if you combine what two colors, you get orange. Yeah, red and yellow. You combine red and yellow. So you combine two primaries and you get a secondary color. So orange is what you get when you combine two primaries. So we call our student ministry sort of orange because we see it as a combination of two primary things, the church and the family. We see us working together. Uh, we need each other and we can do more together. That's our point. Um, as a family, you need the family of God. You need the body of Christ. You, you, you really, really do. And just bringing your children to church on Sunday is a great step. It's a good first step, but, but you need more. I, I promise you, if a child grows up in our church, they will remember probably not a single one of the sermons I ever preach. Not one sermon I preach will be remembered, but they'll never forget a Sunday school teacher. They'll never forget their small group leader. That's why you need to get your kids plugged in a little bit more than just on Sunday morning. We want to truly help our children learn to know and love Jesus in a deep, deep way. And that takes uh, us working together, the body of Christ, the family of God, along with your family. We just want to come alongside you. Now, we always assume that you are the primary spiritual leader in your child's life. It's not us. 
I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church, but honestly, uh, you're the pastor of your family and, and your children depend upon you. You will have a much, much greater influence in shaping your children than any of us at church ever will. You've got them for hundreds of hours a week and we get them for maybe three if you bring them three times a week. You understand? You are the primary spiritual influence and that's why we want to equip, encourage, and work alongside you as parents, as grandparents, as families. So that's why we call it orange. It's when two primaries come together, family and church together make children's ministry. And that takes us to Judges chapter 11. I want to bring two sermons back to back. Today is a word to parents. Next week is a word to children. Judges chapter 11. The story that we are looking at this morning, I'll be up front with, I don't like this story. It's the word of God. I love God's word. I love it all, but I don't like this story. You won't like it either. It's a dreadful story that comes from a dreadful period in the history of the people of God. The book of Judges is unique. It's just a chaotic book. Uh, There really aren't a lot of positive examples in there for us, or at least not altogether positive, because of uh, the particular time of of, of history for God's people. If you want to sum it up, look at, to turn over to Judges chapter 17, verse 6. There's a verse that keeps coming back around in the book of, of Judges like a refrain, like a chorus. It keeps echoing back and forth. And it's this verse. You find it, for example, in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Okay, you know that's not going to go well. When people have no moral compass outside of their own minds, their own selves, there's no other standard of right and wrong other than what you feel like doing. This is not going to go well. And this is the verse that keeps coming back around in the book of Judges. You keep being reminded, listen, and these days everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's not going to go well. But it helps you understand something about Judges chapter 11. What we see happening here, this is not an example to follow But there is a lesson to learn as parents from the horrible story of Jephthah. Jephthah chapter 11, let me just summarize a bit. We'll pick up in verse 29. Jephthah was uh, uh, the son of a prostitute. Uh, So that means his his, his illegitimate son of his father, uh, which means uh, brothers and sisters despised him, that hated him. You know, they're... Mama wasn't his mama, so he didn't get to come to Thanksgiving ever. He was an outcast, literally. I mean, it's what the Bible says, an outcast. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. He was never loved, never accepted in his family. He had the past. He had the story. Um, but then one day when they needed a guy that had nothing to lose, when they needed a guy who was daring, needed a guy who was just mean, uh, they went after Jephthah because they needed somebody to, uh, to fight a battle, to lead them in battle. So they go to Jephthah. And Jephthah is about to take them into battle in chapter 11, verse 29. This is where we'll pick up. Judges chapter 11, verse 29. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead. And from there, he led an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you, okay, let's stop right there. Let's just stop. What's the first thing we learn in verse 29? What's the first thing we learn about Jephthah in regards to this battle? The spirit of the Lord is upon him. All right? The spirit of the Lord is upon him. That means he has everything he needs. He has everything he needs. He has all of the strength. He has everything he needs. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He is ready for this battle. And if the spirit is on him, he's going to win this battle. You understand that? 
His, 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 his success is guaranteed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. But understand, Jephthah doesn't know the Spirit well. He doesn't know God well. And what he's about to do is not something that would please God. You with me? So, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He doesn't need to do that. God doesn't require that. God didn't ask for that, but here we go. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it, it, underline that word, it. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aror to an area near Maneath and as far away as Abel Karamim. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. She said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But but first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months because I will die a virgin. You may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made. Her father kept the vow he had made and she died a virgin. How how could he kill his daughter? I mean, let let that sink in. He he, he burned her. He killed her. How could he do that? I think the only thing that we can possibly say is that, uh, among other things, he really didn't know what the life of a girl is worth. (laughs) You you know what I'm saying? He did not know what she was worth. To take her life like that, he didn't know what her life was worth. I don't know why it's so easy for us to forget what the life of a child is worth. Even our own children, we we take it all for granted, don't we? We take our kids for granted. I I guess it's when we have one and and they place that child in your arms and instantly that the child feels like a part of you. And it, it is in a way a part of you. The Bible says a man will know his wife and the Two will become one flesh. And, and that, of course, describes the sexual act, but also, very importantly, it, it, it describes how the child, the, the child himself embodies that one flesh of the parents. And that child is one part daddy and, and one part mom, and together, you know, it's a person. 
But, but, but in the truest sense, that child is not an extension of you. That child is not part of you. Our culture has this horrible way of, I, I use the word thingify. I could be making that word. Is that a word, thingify? I, I think it is a word, thingify. What, what do I mean by thingify? We, we make people into things. And our culture makes children into things. And honestly, we as parents, we often think of our children like, like things, as if they were just accessories to our lives. We, 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 we thingify them. We, we think of them as just a, a, a part of us. This is what Jephthah does, and it's part of how you understand, first off, that, 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 that there's something wrong with, with this man. He says, I, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it. Sacrifice it. I mean, what does he think is going to come out of his house? I mean, he's only got one child. It's a daughter. He has one child, a daughter, and we assume a wife. Lord knows where she is this whole time. The only thing that could possibly come out of the house would be his daughter. I'm going to sacrifice it. So even from the beginning, you get the idea that he doesn't understand what this girl is worth. He doesn't understand her life. She's not just part of him. She's not just an accessory to his victory. She's not just a bargaining tool for God, but that's how he uses her. Whatever comes out of my house, I'll give her to you if you'll give me victory. I mean, that's not how God works. That's not how any of this works, but he doesn't know how any of this works. He does not know God. He does not know that this would not please God. He does not know that this is not what God wants. He doesn't know much at all. It just sort of puts his... Daughter in there, whatever comes out, you know, it's about himself. It's about his victory. He thingifies his daughter, uses her sort of as a pawn to get what he wants from God. And in the end, the daughter just becomes an accessory to his victory. She comes out, she's got to die. Notice what he says. Notice how he talks to her. It's amazingly, amazingly inexcusable. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out. You've completely destroyed me. Excuse me? You've destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me. Excuse me? How is this her fault? She's running out dancing, celebrating her daddy's coming home. And and what does he say? Oh, girl, you done gone now and made me have to kill you. That's what he says. You done gone, look at you. Girl, look at you. You have ruined my life. That's what he says. You've ruined everything. Out here now, you made me have to kill you. She's just a daughter. She belongs to me. He thinks he can do with her whatever he wants to do. She's his daughter, you know. Thingified. We do the same thing as parents. It is the great temptation of parents, and we don't know that we do it. We love our children. But our temptation is sort of to forget that our children are, are, are each, you know, individuals that God himself has made, you know, and we just sort of think of them as something we made, and therefore, you know, aspects of our life that, that somehow we get to determine and and it doesn't work that way. So, so we end up sort of imposing on our children our own unlived lives. You understand what I'm saying by that? 
It's like I have a son, and, and I never really was athletic. I was never like a great football player. Like I never could play football. So I'm just determined that my son is going to become just this football monster. And so everything about his life becomes football, football, football. And it's really not about whether or not he loves football. It's more about a dad wanting a son who's a football star. You understand? I'm imposing my unlived life on him. I'm living somehow through him. That's not how any of this is supposed to work, but you know how easy that is. I always wanted to be pretty. I was never pretty, so I'm going to make awful sure that my daughter is going to be a pageant queen. So she's out there, you know, at two years old, walking down a you know, runway in a sequin diaper, you know, because I wanted to feel pretty. I mean, you understand how that works? Have you not seen that work? Have you not been to the ballpark and watched crazy parents? All of a sudden you realize this is not about the kids, y'all. This is about crazy parents imposing their unlived lives, all of the things I was never able to do. I'm going to make sure he gets to do all of the ways I was never fulfilled, man. He's going to get fulfilled. I mean, I'm imposing my unlived life on my son, on my daughter. It doesn't work that way. You're not the one who gets to dream the dream of your children's life. It doesn't work that way. Turn over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Come on, let's hear some pages turn. Psalm 139, verse 13. The whole chapter is amazing. Well, let's do verse 13. The psalmist is praising God for the way God made him. But remember how God made you. Psalm 139, verse 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me even before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Do you understand the truth of that passage? Do you understand that God knew your child before you knew your child? Do you understand that God already dreamed the dream of your child's life before you could ever dream a dream for your child's life? Do you not understand this? What you have to realize is your child isn't just important because of what they mean to you. Your child is important because of what they mean to God. Do you understand that? Your child is important, not just because of what they mean to you, but because, first of all, what they mean to God. And honestly, every child is of infinite worth to God. Every child, your children, my child, every child is of infinite worth to God. They are gods. God made them, and God himself has dreamed the dream of their life. So honestly, your job is not to sort of raise this child so that she can live out your unfulfilled dream. Your, your job as a parent is not to dream this amazing dream and then to help your child accomplish her dreams or your dreams. It's not about your dreams or her dreams. It's about God's dream. God has dreamed the dream for her life, and it is your job as a parent to see to it that that daughter, that that son gets to live out God's dream for their life. Your dream is not big enough. I, I know, I know it's very important to you, but you're just dreaming things that probably come out of your own unlived life. Let God do the dreaming. You just do the parenting. 
And the parenting has everything to do with leading that child to know God, to hear God's voice, and to follow God's dream for her life. Every child is of infinite, infinite worth to God. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 18 while we're turning. Matthew 18, let's look at what Jesus says here. You're probably used to reading this passage, but you're not used to reading it in the context of being a parent. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Matthew 18, 1, this is Jesus. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them, and then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like this little child, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 5, listen. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this in my name is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it will be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Okay, that last part, verses 5 and 6, are sort of a blessing and a curse there. Do you see that? What Jesus says there is that whenever you welcome a child in his name, you're welcoming him. In other words, the way you treat children, the way you interact with children, Jesus takes that personally. He takes that personally. Every child is of infinite worth. You understand? He takes that personally. And there's a blessing involved, a blessing involved in Jesus' own words for those who bring children to him. Those who welcome children in Jesus' name, those who bring children to Jesus, there's a blessing involved with that. That's a good thing. That's your job. But there's a curse involved with anyone who leads children away. This is what Jesus says. It'd be better for you if a millstone, what's a millstone? The the giant grinding stone that Jesus and the people in his day would have seen at the mill. Tie one of those around your neck and throw you in the ocean. You'd be better off. That's a curse, you all. That's a curse. In other words, Jesus has this blessing for those who help children come to him and a curse for those who, who take children in the other direction. Now, this is a fairly sobering word for parents, I think. It's a very, very important word for parents because in nearly everything you do, you're either sending your children toward Jesus or you're sending them in the other direction. It's very hard to be spiritually neutral as a parent. One way or the other, you're helping your children take another step closer to him or a step away from him. And there are blessings and curses involved with this whole business. Probably we should have told you this before you had kids. Jesus promises a blessing for those who bring children to him and a curse for those who lead them away. Back to Judges. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you've completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I've made a vow to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. She said, Father, if you've made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you vowed. 
What, what makes them think so? I, I mean, honestly, what in the world makes them simply accept this outcome? Jephthah has options here. Number one, I remind you, there's no reason to have ever made that vow in the first place, that there's nothing that would require that. God didn't ask for that. God wasn't pleased by it. There's nothing about this vow that is in line with what God would choose. But but Jephthah doesn't realize that, and his daughter doesn't realize that. And somehow this most horrible outcome, the fact that he's going to kill his daughter, this is something they just both accept as if it's just, you know, what we have to do. Why do they simply accept that outcome? Well, honestly, it's because everybody around them did that. They may belong to the people of God in in a very rough time in the people of God's history, but I'm telling you, their Canaanite neighbors, they did sacrifice children. It wasn't that this is unheard of in the culture, the surrounding culture. That's what they did. They sacrificed their sons. They sacrificed their daughters. They killed children in the name of their false gods. The Canaanite religion sacrificed children. And so Jephthah has Canaanite neighbors who do this, who've done this. And this poor girl has grown up with the surrounding culture where they would actually kill children on the altar of a false god. I mean, this is the culture. Their neighbors do this. People do this. Everybody does this in their culture. The fact is God's people aren't supposed to do that. This isn't what it means to belong to our God. This isn't what pleases Jephthah's God. But Jephthah doesn't know his God. At least not well enough to know that this is completely, completely out of the bounds of what this God would be pleased with. Jephthah doesn't know any of that, but he knows his culture, and he's let the culture help him make this sort of decision. The culture helped him make this sort of vow. And it's the culture that causes this poor girl simply to accept that this must be what's supposed to happen. It's the culture. What I would say here is that, honestly, for all of us, it's a bad sign for your family when things that should bother you don't bother you much at all. The fact that the neighbors, the fact that the Canaanite religions are sacrificing children, that should alarm a person of God. That should alarm Jephthah. He should not be okay with this. I mean, that that is absolutely evil. It's unthinkable. And yet for Jephthah, it's just sort of the way things are. It's the way the world works. He's accepted what he should never accept to the point which what should actually really disturb him doesn't disturb him at all. As a matter of fact, he and his daughter just accept that this is how this plays out. Because this is how it plays out where they live. The problem is that's not supposed to be how it plays out when you belong to God. I don't think that any of us would kill our children, would sacrifice our children in that way. I I do think, though, that we do end up sacrificing the spiritual lives of our children. And I think it happens pretty much in the same way it happened for Jephthah. In, In other words, there's just this process that kicks in whenever we are no longer bothered by the things that ought to bother us. I'm saying it's a really bad sign for your family right now that things that should bother you don't bother you much at all. It should bother you that our culture thingifies and sexualizes your little girl in a way that little girls aren't supposed to be sexualized. You don't see that? It doesn't bother you? I mean, I don't mean to sound like some cranky old man, but, but 
you know, like the prom dresses that girls wear to prom now. I mean, we're talking about your little girl. She's 16, 17 years old, and she's not supposed to have a dress, you know, slid up to here. You know, the thing goes on Facebook. I mean, you know, your daughter is a beautiful young woman, but she's not supposed to go out looking like a Kardashian, y'all. I mean, the Kardashians are not our example. She's not supposed to go out looking like that. Dad, why are you not bothered by the way your little girl's being sexualized so early? And so very early. And, and the way our culture tells our boys that masculinity itself is toxic. What's a little boy going to do if, 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 if his very nature in being a man is questioned in a culture that really doesn't have any place for strong men? I mean, what? none of this bothers you? You're just abandoning your children in this culture? You don't, aren't bothered by things that really ought to bother you? I mean, most of what's on television should really bother you, doesn't? Did it stop bothering you? Do you even know what your children watch on Netflix? Do you care? Because there's not a lot to watch on Netflix. There's not a lot to watch. And the fact that you become so okay with so much of it, this is a really bad sign for your family. I'm just being honest. This is a bad sign. It ought to bother you. There probably was a time in your life when it would have bothered you, but the things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore at all. Yeah, I mean, your whole family piles up on the couch and watches garbage that you should not even be watching at all. It doesn't bother you, though, anymore. And I'm telling you, that's a bad sign. It's a bad sign that your best friend is your daughter and not your husband. That's a bad sign for you, but it ought to bother you. It ought to bother you somehow that that you haven't had an actual conversation with your teenage son in years. You wouldn't know how to start a conversation with your teenage daughter. As a matter of fact, you'd rather stay in the garage than walk in the house and talk to her. That ought to bother you. There's something profoundly broken in your family, sir. It should bother you that your wife is thinking in the back of her head that as soon as the kids are out of high school, she's leaving you. That ought to bother you. These are bad signs. You have to stop every now and then and just ask yourself where this road that your family's on is going to take your family. And some of these things should bother you. It should probably bother you that your kids wake up on Sunday morning and have to ask you if the family's going to church. That should bother you. It should bother you that your daughter has to ask you, mom, to put down your phone and pay attention to her. That should bother you. I mean, we joke about the kids texting. The kids texting is not the problem that we have in the families when it's the mother, the father that stay glued to their phone. Put it down. You have kids. I talk to your kids. I have kids in my office sometimes saying, my mother will not put down her phone. I have to text my mother to get her attention. We're in the house together. That should bother you. I'm just telling you, that should bother you. It should bother you that you're all about your kids on Facebook, but then you don't even pay attention to them and they're in the house with you. That there's something wrong. It should bother you that you want the shiplap that Joanna Gaines has more than you want the heart of Jesus. That there's just something wrong and there's something broken here. And I just want you to see it. It should bother you that your daughter can bust the Kiki challenge like Shiggy. But now, she doesn't excel in anything spiritual. That your son can be on the 100th level of Fortnite and you're so proud, but your son 
probably can't name the first four books in the New Testament after all these years in Sunday school. Maybe an honor student somewhere, but they're not learning spiritually. They're not excelling. They're not getting any kind of success in their spiritual life. This should bother you. It's just awesome that they can do the shiggy, but it's a little bit embarrassing that they can't pray. I'm sorry if this sounds hard. I don't want to sound harsh. I love you and I love your family. I love your kids. I mean, you brought your kids to me when they were born. You said, Pastor Tim, I wanted, we want to dedicate our child. And I thought we all agreed on what that meant. I, I thought that meant that you understood that you're, you're giving them back, that you recognize from the beginning that this child doesn't really belong to you, that it belongs to God. And, and you're just recognizing that you get to you know, train them and give them back to God. And that's, that's your job. I thought we understood that. I, I thought that I stood here with your baby and I prayed. I mean, I prayed the same words over every child. We stood here and I held your child and I said, Lord, let this girl stand for the truth and let her love goodness and let her enjoy the beauty of God wherever these things are found. And then I said, grow little one to love Jesus and always remember that Jesus first loved you. I mean, we did that, didn't we? I thought we meant that. I, I thought that our goal was to work together so that your children would learn to know and love Jesus. I, I thought you were serious about that. We get children in the baptistry. It's wonderful to see them when they finally hear God's voice and they respond to the offer of salvation. That's beautiful. They stand in the baptistry. I, I put my hands on their head as a, as a representative of all of us together, and we pray together, God, use this child to do something important in the world for the name of Jesus. Don't we pray that over every child? Don't we mean it? I mean, don't we want them to live for Jesus? Because I thought we all wanted our children to love Jesus and love him more than anything else. Jephthah didn't think. He didn't think about her. He thought about his battle. He thought about victory. He wanted victory. He didn't think about her. He would sacrifice her for his victory. It enhances his profile. It enhances his celebration. He didn't think about her. I'm afraid, as parents, we don't always think. You don't think about how your actions and choices affect your kids. You just don't think. I, I know that you're always going to do better. I mean, as a dad, I'm always wanting to do better. The thing is, time just goes by so fast. And when you're little, it goes by even faster. I mean, these two years that you've been wasting while you were trying to, you know, get, get your mess together, you know, if you've got a you know, six-year-old, that, that two years is a third of his life. A third of his life, he's waiting for you to get your mess together. Get your mess together. You've got kids. Get your marriage right. You've got kids. Get your heart right with God. You've got kids. 
And you just simply have to see the ways in which your children are going to pay the price for your choices and actions. Now, this goes two ways. I mean, you make good choices. If your actions are pleasing to the Lord, then your children will benefit. Your children will benefit by having a dad who listens to the voice of the Lord and follows the Lord. Your children will flourish under your care if you're that kind of dad. If you're the mother who has the heart of Jesus, your children will flourish. But to whatever degree you let other things take over your heart, to whatever degree you put other choices, other things above following the Lord yourself, I mean, your children pay the price for that. I know that Jephthah had a horrible childhood. He couldn't choose that, y'all. He didn't choose his mama, the prostitute. He didn't choose that. He didn't choose any of this. His brothers and sisters hated him. Of course they did. He's not really their brother. He never had a family. He never really had a dad. He, some of you, you didn't have much either, and you're, trying to do the best you can do, and you never had a godly father. You never had a godly mother. You're trying to be what you've never seen. God bless you. I know you're trying hard. Just, just let me remind you just that the simple truth. Uh, this is the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. This is God the Father speaking. He says, I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I, I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, first off, understand God is your Father. Your Heavenly Father has always been watching over you. He's been your one and only. He's never taken His eyes off of you. There's not been a moment when He didn't continue to dream a dream for your life. Even as a parent now, He's still dreaming a dream for your life. You really need to find out what He has in store for you and learn to live that life. But it's not just about you anymore. I mean, you, you got kids, and understand that they also need to learn to know their Heavenly Father. Your role as father and mother are so important, but, but your primary role is just to make sure that they get to know their Heavenly Father. They need to know the Lord. You're not always going to be here. We're going to bury you one day, and your children will be left, and we need to know that we're leaving them in the arms of the Heavenly Father who loves them and, and who already they've learned to know and love themselves. Your job is to help them to know their heavenly father. You want them to know and love Jesus because honestly, if they don't know and love Jesus, you're abandoning them to a culture that is going to destroy them. If you don't, if you don't teach your children to love Jesus, what's going to become of them? What's going to become of them? Pray with me. Oh God, none of us is perfect. There's never been a perfect father. There's never been a perfect mother. And yet, Lord, you just continue to give us children and trust them to us, Lord. We, we don't love perfectly. We don't discipline perfectly. Lord, we come home tired. We always want to do better. Our kids deserve better. Oh, God, just help us. Help us, first off, to understand that we are your children and that you are our Father and you are a good, good Father. Help us to trust you. Help us to give you our hearts. 
our minds, and Lord, just help us to love you and follow you in such a way where our kids will, will learn to follow you just by following us. Help us to walk that closely to you, that faithfully. Lord, bless our kids. Lord, we can't do this by ourselves. Lord, so bless this church. Lord, help us as, as a family of God to, to love each other and encourage each other and, and love each other's kids. Help us, Lord, to encourage each other. Help us to forgive each other. Help us to forgive ourselves. Lord, some of us hear this sermon this morning, and we feel like we've already messed up. We feel like we've already waited too long. We see our children, Lord, already so hard-hearted, already so out of control, Lord, already so far away from us. Help us to know how to start now. Help us, Lord, to start in the season that we have now, Lord. We can't change the past. We can't undo what we've done. We can't go back and do what we didn't do, Lord, but we can do something different today in the lives of our kids, our grandkids. So, Lord, help us to start today. Help us, Lord, to change the way we're living today, to change the way we're raising our kids today, Lord. We don't know how to do this, Lord, but you know all things. You've entrusted us with these kids, Lord, so you must somehow think it's a good idea. So help us, Lord, as a family to live for you and as a family to live out your dream for our family so that every single one of us, Lord, can become the men, women, sons and daughters you've created us to be. Lord, we just want to love like you, to love our kids like you love our kids. Help us, Lord, to love as you love our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.